Hi, I'm Leah Wheatholter, owner of Workman Forensics, and this is the Investigation Game Podcast. Hey everyone, Alicia here with a super cool announcement. We want our listeners to be a part of the show by giving us their favorite fraud stories. But we won't be reading it for you. We want you on the show. So if you'd like to be a part, email your favorite story to assistant at workmanforensics.com and we'll work together and get you on the show. Welcome to the Investigation Game Podcast. I'm your host, Leah Wheatholter, CEO and founder of Workman Forensics in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Joining me today is Sergeant David Walker. Sergeant Walker is a retired Tulsa police officer who is often featured on A&E's First 48. Sergeant Walker was employed by the Tulsa Police Department starting in 1982, working patrol, undercover, burglary, robbery, and homicide. Sergeant Walker now hosts a true crime podcast, Solve Them When You Get Them, on which he describes and details cases he has worked. He also currently creates presentations for workshops, trainings, and keynote speaker engagements. Sergeant Walker, thank you for joining me today. Well, Leah, thank you for having me. To start things off, I am always curious in these interviews, did you grow up wanting to be a police officer or an investigator? No, not at all. I really gave no thought to what I'd be doing professionally until my maybe senior year in college. And then it was getting time where I couldn't uh, stay in school forever. I wasn't going to get advanced degrees, so I had to get a job. I had a Bachelor of Science in Criminal Justice, and Tulsa Police Department was on campus. Met with them, came down for a couple interviews, and lo and behold, here I am, and they just couldn't get rid of me. So that's how I ended up being a cop. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And just so interesting because you have so many different experiences while you were employed with the Tulsa Police Department. So what was your inspiration or what kind of made you change your focus throughout your career at TPD? It's one of those things that uh, people don't understand about law enforcement and the police organization. There's so many different facets to uh, the job. You can be in patrol, obviously people see that. But then you can go and be undercover. You can be a computer person. You can be a crime analyst. Uh, If you're a numbers cruncher, you can uh, work in records. You can work in uh, property management. Just a a lot of different things. I kind of like uh, dealing with the underworld. So I focus more on patrol, worked undercover for 10 years, and then just kind of went into the investigative side of it. But all sides are are interesting, uh, except traffic accidents. And thank goodness that uh, we have a group that likes to do car wrecks because, uh, boy, I wasn't any good at it. And I didn't much like people running into things. So uh, after that, I mean, that's kind of why I kept moving. Uh, You get a little stale a little bit, doing the same thing over and over year after year. And I was able and thankfully changed directions uh, several times throughout my career. Yeah. So what was the area where you really feel like you found your stride? I wasn't much of the real undercover type. So uh, I I was never really in the drug industry when I was growing up. I was more of the athletic type in high school and college. So I, I didn't quite know that genre or dealing with those people, but that's where I learned how to investigate. You have to learn how to talk to people. You have to learn how to do the paperwork, get search warrants, and really said, you know, putting people in prison forever for drugs was not 
where I wanted to be, but it's where I had to be to learn how to do what I was doing. And then from there, I, I said, you know, investigations is my niche and uh, I should focus on that. So then I went to you know, the lesser crimes. The most fun I ever had was, was in burglary, just because uh, they're probably not going to kill you. I mean, you just chase them around a little bit and you find out who they are and they release them the next day. So it's a catch and release program. And uh, that's where, again, you learn how to talk to people and, and do canvases and interviews and put two and two together and who's driving what car and all that. And then I went to robbery, which was uh, they will kill you. And then I went to homicides where they already did kill people. So it's just a natural progression to where I ended up. Yeah, some of our listeners today may be wondering why I've invited a retired homicide detective on this quote-unquote fraud podcast. But, you know, I, I like to emphasize as much as possible that the goal of this podcast, the Investigation Game podcast, is to discuss all things investigation, not just fraud. And so that being said, where do you think approaches to fraud investigations and murder investigations could intersect? What do you think are some of those skills that you have to have in both situations? Because we're talking investigation, we're trying to find out what happened and solve that problem of just connecting those dots. So I'm curious where you think those things intersect. Well, I tell you where they're a little bit different is the fraud investigator. And I understand you are one of them also. Uh, and looking at Allie uh, in our fraud unit at Tulsa Police Department, they're very organized. Yeah, there's organized uh, homicide detectives, but I was not one of those. But the intersection is, it's the same. I think you have a crime that has occurred, whether it's a, a dead body on the street or somebody making counterfeit bills or forging checks. Your goal is the same. Find out who did what and document it well enough to make the arrest. And your end goal is to have that person cease doing what they're doing. And, and so the Interview process is going to be a lot the same. The gathering of background information is going to be the same. The intelligence network that you gain as a fraud investigator is the same process as we do in violent crimes. You know who's doing what, when, and you know where to go to find the uh, forger or the counterfeiter or any of those interesting people. And we know who's driving what and all of that's going to intersect and be the same. The end goal is always the same. I think fraud investigators can be homicide investigators. I don't think the other way works just because I'm not as particular about uh, numbers and, and that sort of thing in the fraud world. Not that I, I probably couldn't be good at it. It's just, well, it scares me a little bit to, to get into that embezzlement world, so to speak. I'd rather face a guy with a gun than a man with a pencil. The, that's where they're different. Yeah. At the end of these cases, you mentioned that, you know, the goal is the same. So the end goal of a fraud investigator or forensic accountant like myself is to put together this list of facts that helps the district attorney or even federal prosecutors to prosecute a case. The way that we do it is that we are, like you mentioned, just very organized and detailed and, you know, making sure we've dotted our I's, crossed our T's. What does that look like in a homicide investigation? What are those things that you're working towards to present to the prosecutors for them to be able to do their job? Well, I tell you where they're a little bit different is the fraud investigator 
and uh, I understand you are one of them also, uh, and looking at Ali uh, in our fraud unit at Tulsa Police Department, they're very organized. Yeah, there's organized uh, homicide detectives, but I was not one of those. But the intersection is, it's the same. I think you have a crime that has occurred, whether it's a, a dead body on the street or somebody making counterfeit bills or forging checks. Your goal is the same. Find out who did what and document it well enough to make the arrest. And your end goal is to have that person cease doing what they're doing. And so the interview process is going to be a lot the same. The gathering of background information is going to be the same. The intelligence network that you gain as a fraud investigator is the same process as we do in violent crimes. You know who's doing what when, and you know where to go to find the uh, forger or the counterfeiter or any of those interesting people. And we know who's driving what, and all that's going to intersect and be the same. The end goal is always the same. I think fraud investigators can be homicide investigators. I don't think the other way works just because I'm not as particular about uh, numbers and, and that sort of thing in the fraud world. Not that I, I probably couldn't be good at it. It just, well, it scares me a little bit to, to get into that embezzlement world, so to speak. I'd rather face a guy with a gun than a man with a pencil. That's where they're different. Yeah. Um, you know, at the end of these cases, you mentioned that, you know, the goal is the same. And so in your homicide investigations, the end goal, uh, or at, let me say it from my perspective, the end goal of a fraud investigator or forensic accountant like myself is to put together this list of facts that helps the district attorney or um, even, you know, federal prosecutors to prosecute a case. And um, so the way that we do it is that we are, like you mentioned, just very organized and detailed and, you know, making sure we've dotted our I's, crossed our T's. What does that look like in a homicide investigation? What are those things that you're working towards to present to the prosecutors for them to be able to do their job? Well, I think ours in the embezzlement world or the, the fraud world are going to be a little bit different just by the type of evidence that we're going to be presenting. When you're in the homicide world, we're, we're working more off of where people were at a certain time. How are we going to prove that the, the suspect is, is with the victim? That sort of thing. So it, it gets kind of different that way in the paperwork. But I, I would see a lot of the same in, in regards to cell phone records and doing that research on, on Google and all the other apps that are, that are out there that assist uh, investigators, all investigators. But the paperwork is going to be different that we're going to have probably more people talking about the murder. Uh, I don't know that embezzlement, and I don't know, you could correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think you're going to have a lot of people say uh, the suspect went and told me that they just embezzled $3 million from a company. But we do have people that say, I just killed, you know, did you watch the news? Did you see the news? They want to get famous that way. So we use a lot of that testimony when it comes to uh, presenting the case to the prosecutor. 
think a, a fraud investigator and prosecutor w- would look at a case and say, where are the numbers? They're looking at a lot of paper. The homicide prosecutor and the investigator have to sit down and say, what do you got? And then we have to sometimes, you know, sometimes kick it and scream and pull them through the case, they being the prosecutors, so that they understand we're dealing with something that isn't really cut and dry, black and white. You have to uh, kind of imagine that. So that, that's where they differ. The, the paperwork flow is going to be the same. I just think that the, the fraud investigation is probably going to be a little bit more in-depth. And I don't want to say boring, but it'd be boring to me to, to pour through that. That's why we have people like you. Right. Yeah, I would agree. So much of our investigations are reliant on bank records or financial records instead of, you know, we might talk to a few people, but not nearly as many as I would imagine you have to talk to in a, in a homicide investigation. You talk to people as part of your investigation in a homicide, but you mentioned Google and cell phone records, you know, to us kind of translated to my world, those would be data sources that help just provide additional evidence, maybe related to where people are. So what are some of those types of data sources that homicide detectives use to help them and maybe corroborating what witnesses have told them? Well, we have to use a lot of those sources like the dating apps because, you know, when you have a murder, there's going to be several reasons why people are dead. I always like to say it's money, sex, drugs, or some sort of vendetta. Once we get the victim identified, then we can start with the data sources. And if we can't get the victim identified, we can't obviously go to their Facebook page, their Instagram, their Snapchat. And then, you know, obviously if we get the cell phone, we can go to where they've been. They're on Plenty of Fish or some of these other apps that uh, are dating apps. It kind of leads us to where they were and where they're going and possibly to a suspect. We always have to go in with an open mind, though. We can't say when you got a body on on the street or in a house or in a car, uh, I've seen this before. You got to kind of work it as you you get it. Now, I don't know about the the fraud world, but you might be able to say, well, this looks like a Ponzi scheme or, you know, I don't even know what that is, but I know it's not good. So when we work a murder, we kind of just got to go in with it. Like we don't really know what happened, but we've got to find several things. We got to find out who's dead and why they're dead. And one will lead to the other. If you don't know who did it, you got to find out why. And if you don't know why and who, then you really have a real hard time getting to a conclusion on that. Like I said, every investigator out there worth their salt, that's the end goal is to to get the answer to somebody. You know, we, we always say, don't let no be the final answer. Uh, no is not a good answer. We don't know who did it. And uh, no, I'm not going to tell you. But if we know that you know, then no is not the answer. We'll find a way to get it. And I'm not really sure that answers your question, but I kind of got sidetracked. Oh, no, that's good. I like what you said about not going into a scene thinking that you've seen this before, because we definitely talk about that in the fraud world. And we actually have this investigation game that we do as a training, and it's an actual game. And part of what we talk about is we only include what we know. A lot of times our clients want to tell us, well, if they did this, then they probably did this too. And so just being able to go back to what does the evidence actually show us? And as 
You mentioned working it as you get it. We'll be right back to this interview. With everything moving to an online platform, the Workman Forensics team has created the investigation game Virtual Experience. The game has been created, tested, tested again, and approved for two hours of CPE credits. To find out if the game works for you and your team, visit theinvestigationgame.com. Welcome back to the podcast. So let's move to First 48, the TV show on Annie. How did your work with them come about? First 48, as I understand it, they came to uh, Chief Ron Palmer back when Chief Palmer was here and inquired whether Tulsa, they could come to Tulsa and work. Chief Palmer said no. He wasn't any part of the TV industry. Tulsa police would not be a part of that. When Chief Chuck Jordan took over, uh, it probably was a couple of years later that the First 48 reapproached uh, Chuck Jordan. And Chief Jordan was in agreement that uh, we could probably make this work. And I remember having uh, probably the final meeting and I was kind of told that's what we were going to do, but they did ask me, can we make this work? You know, when I'm sitting there with the chief and the major and all the other bosses, it's like, man, I'm the low person on the totem pole, but I can make anything work that you want me to. And we signed the agreement in July 1, 2014. Uh, they were on the ground and it, it worked out well. I think it's a, a good program for the department. I don't know how much uh, longer sustainability is in the current world, but uh, for us and, and for me, it, it, it worked well. Yeah. So what was working with the show like? Like how many days were they with you and following you around? And what is that like working in investigation with cameras around you? I mean, what was that like? <laughs> it was easy, actually, because the people that ITV, which is the parent company of the First 48, sent down here. Brandon Swanson and Adam Singer were the first two camera people here, and they were just stand-up perfect people for that position. By the time it was over, heck, one of our guys, Ronnie Leatherman, goes out to Seattle and visits Brandon all the time now. So they're, they're friends. So the personalities are, of the camera people and the staff people uh, are a big part of why they succeed. If we mixed uh, and we didn't get along and they got in our way all the time, uh, I would have said, we, we can't do this. Our job is to solve murders, not become TV stars. But they're embedded with us. They have an office right outside my office. The detectives really don't want to be in that spot because uh, I think John Brown found out when I look out and need something done. He's the first person I saw. So he said, let's switch the first 48 with me and I'll go somewhere else. But they're, they're right there with us. Uh, they, they run with us. They go to our meetings. I call them huddles in the morning. When we've got a murder going on, they end up participating in that, even though they're probably not supposed to. But if we get something wrong, they, you can see on their face that it's like, I don't remember that. And they'll chime in. So they would probably be good uh, detectives if they weren't in the uh, artist of uh, being in the field. So it's just a, a good fit. You don't really notice the cameras after a while. It's hard to say that they're not there, but uh, they're moving around but they're very good at what they do in reality TV. Sometimes they got signals that they do when there's two cameras on board so they don't cross each other and they don't get sh in the shot. But uh, for us, we, we do what we gotta do. The only problem we had with them is you got a mic up so you could be in the middle of something and they show up and you have to stop and, and put a mic on so that they can hear you. But other than that, I don't know how uh, they can fix that. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's all very fascinating. Do you have a favorite episode that they 
recorded? Like that you participated in? Well, I participated in in a lot of them because I went to probably every murder scene there was. Uh, some of them I'm more involved. Uh, uh, some of the times I'm not as involved. And near the end, I wasn't uh, involved because I was trying to to hand the reins off to the other folks and not be involved. And plus, I didn't have to testify in court. But, uh, I think the first one we did, ringside seat, was uh, interesting in the way because we were young still. We were, you know, the team was still learning my methods and I'm learning theirs. And we incorporated some undercover stuff in, in that episode. And then you could see the teaching that was going on. Much to the chagrin, I think Jason White had the first uh, the first case, and we were talking, and, and that got captured on the final version, the final cut of the first 48 in ringside seat, that he, he kind of looks at me like, what the heck are you trying to <laughs> make me do? And I'm not real happy about that. But you could see in the uh, next couple years later, Jason uses that. And what it was is he was going to put somebody in jail that was just a witness. And I was going to use that witness as a undercover agent to get to the killer. And uh, later on in a episode years and years down the road, Jason White said the same thing and did that exact same thing, that he was not going to put the person in jail and use that person to get to the killer. So that was, uh, you can see how our team works a little bit. Everybody has a suggestion. Everybody is... uh, equal up to the point to where it's decision time and then it has to be uh, the decision of the supervisor which was was me and and that showed up in the ringside seat another one was um can't remember the case but i remember corporal nathan schilling who's a great detective probably you know jason and nathan are are two of the best that you'll find in the nation but he was young too coming into the homicide unit and we were doing a case we just didn't have enough evidence i think it was bella when it was a prostitute case to, in my opinion, to, to arrest and his opinion, well, he was done working it. So I made him go back out and do some recanvassing and they found a witness and it worked out really well and made me look like I was, a, you know, <laughs> really know what I'm doing, but there are other times when I, that's not the case. So I was wrong. I was wrong in this case and I was right in this case, but uh, just to see the teaching that went on, uh, it was Something I think the fans really don't see in the first 48. They watch it and they try to figure it out, uh, but they really don't see the actual interaction of people. But if looks could kill, uh, Corporal Schilling probably would have killed me right there on camera. So those are, are a couple of the, the ones I remember. Yeah, that might not be their favorite episodes, but no. I do think it's interesting. I don't know if we in prepping for this podcast, if I mentioned or not, but I had volunteered with the fraud unit at TPD for several years. And it is just really insightful just seeing how a police department works and how they look at things and you describing these types of moments in in the show. I just think that's helpful. Kind of switching gears a little bit. Why do cases become cold cases? Oh, man. Um, Like I said, no is not a proper answer, and there's a handful of cases that we just don't get solved, and it can be any number of reasons. Most of these gang cases that that don't get solved is the gang people are going to talk about retaliation, so they really don't want to point the finger at somebody if somebody ends up dead, and and then now we're going to end up looking at them. So 
those cases where people won't talk because of, of some code that they have, we can usually find a way around it, but it just takes a little bit longer, years maybe sometimes. You look at the Peggy Gaetan case that was uh, in 2012, I believe, we just they just solved it uh, this year. And that was gang related, not gang related, but the, the suspects were in a gang and, and gang affiliated and one of the gang members got killed. And so the uh, camaraderie, the reason to be quiet ended and we got the answer that we needed. Other instances are the people that are end up dead and their families end up. We had Joe, uh, I'm sorry, James, um, James Cooper was, was probably the closest assassination we had that a, a hit, so to speak, where he ended up dead and, and don't have much, but shell casings. And if you don't talk about it, man, there's just nowhere to go. And then the family started covering up for the victim. So we don't know what the victim was uh, involved in uh, commercially. He was uh, a businessman that had some shady, shady dealings. And then he, he was kind of a, uh, a womanizer. So it could have went anyway. But the family came in and wiped the computer clean and wouldn't let us in the house. We had to run a search warrant on the house of our victim which has never happened. And that takes time. And that case is unsolved today. So, you know, sometimes the victims get in our way or the victim's family get in the way. But usually, like I said, if we just keep after it, we're going to find a killer. And at the end of that one is a very violent person going away. So we protect us actually in the long run. Yeah. So in a case like that, when the victim's family was interfering with the investigation, did you feel like there was still an expectation from the victim's family for you all to solve it? Yes. Even though they were meddling? Yes. I mean, there was some people that were in the business with, with our victim that were family, and then there's other family that, that weren't, and th those family expect us to solve it, even though we told them what the, you know, what the problem is. And I just talked to uh, the investigator today, as a matter of fact, and that family member has been in contact with him within the, the month. I mean, this happened five years ago. So, yes, they expect us to solve it. And even though the family has put obstacles in the way, everybody wants it solved. And everybody thinks it can be solved. And I agree with them. It can be solved. It's just, boy, we've got to get after it and get to the right people. Sure. One of the questions I have on homicide investigations, and I know that this is a topic that you speak about, what do you do when you have nothing to go on? <laughs> well, we have to go, is kind of what I like to say. I mean, standing around bemoaning our circumstances is not going to get the job done. And I do talk on this, and I do teach on this, and it kind of goes kind of sideways on, on investigations because I say start assuming something. And I know, you know, that's probably the worst thing for a fraud investigator to have is to assume something. But I like to say for the patrol units that are out there standing around talking, that's not going to help us solve it. Assume something and then go try to, to figure it out. And if we're wrong in our first assumption, then we haven't wasted a lot of time. But some of the times uh, we might just be right and we can solve it before they, they get out of the area. And that's a... A neat thing to have happen, uh, to watch a group of team that don't ordinarily work together start working in that realm. And, and we as investigators have to allow 
those patrol officers, the fraud investigators, the, the burglary detectives, the dope cops, everybody access to what we're doing. And so if we really don't have anything to go on, we have to go. And eventually we, we will get somewhere that gets some traction. Standing there saying we have no place to go is not going to work with me or with any of the detectives we got. So uh, when there's not a whole lot to go on, we just got to get going. And I, I know that doesn't answer the question, but that's happened many times. Uh, very little to go on is better than nothing. And, and you know, we looked at the Kayla Ferrante case, which is uh, the 18-year-old Memorial High School student that was uh, killed by accident, basically, or false or, uh, misrepresentation. She in a car. She was in a car that looked like another gang member's car. That's why she ended up shot. And all we had was four shell casings, uh, and that got solved. So you can't tell me that just because we don't have anything, we we can't get to where we need to be. And as long as we have that attitude, then. We, we will be successful more times than not. Do you think this is why the Tulsa Police Department has historically been so successful in closing homicide investigations? Yes, I absolutely do. I think that we allow our detectives to work. Uh, everybody has a great sense of something. They're, they're, they're very good. They're very talented. I like to say they're like a baseball team. Uh, we don't all need to be right fielders or power hitters. We need someone to bunt and pitch and all the other things. And, and that team there is very good. Now, Sergeant uh, Mike Huff before me, who was in, in the Hall of Fame for the law enforcement, put together this mentality that we were able to, to build on. Uh, I think when he left, we were solving 80%. Uh, of the murders, and now we're into the 90, 95, and in 2016, we solved uh, all of them. So it's, uh, it's a credit to the mindset. Now, that being said, we're not there when the killings happen. So Tulsa gets credit for a lot of these. The people will talk to us, and they do talk to us. It's just you know, we have to ask the right questions and be in the right spot. But since we weren't there at the murder, to get a conviction, we need witnesses. And sometimes those witnesses need a little coddling, but for the most part, uh, everybody comes forward. And I like to say, nobody really likes to live around a killer because you know what they can do, you know what they're capable of. And somehow we'll get to where we need to be. And so it's a credit to to the people doing the work and it's a credit to uh, the city itself. Uh, Tulsa is a little bit different than, than most cities. Yeah, talking about how people don't necessarily want to live near a killer and, and eventually talk, and, and that's just kind of how these cases progress. I'm on the board of the Tulsa Area Crime Stoppers, and so my question is, in your experience, did you find tips from Crime Stoppers to be helpful in any of your homicide investigations? Yes. We, as a law enforcement department, would not be able to work without the Crime Stoppers program. I think it can be refined, and I think with Karen Gilbert and you all, it will be a better organization and much more friendlier to use. But without those tips, I know when I was working robbery, gosh, we had to rely on that. And that would be the first thing we look in the morning is see what the tips came in. It's a little different in murder investigations because we have to be able to prove that the suspect did it. We just can't have a phone call saying X, Y, and Z did it, and that's the end. We get to go say, well, we got a Crime Stoppers tip, X, Y, and Z did it, and then we can't put you in jail for that. But if it's a bank robbery and X, Y, and Z did it, you usually got a picture and you could do that with the Crime Stoppers tip. 
I think the next step for the, the crime commission and for the police department is to be able to talk to the tipster. That's where the homicide investigations kind of differ from the other ones. I know it's anonymous and you can be anonymous and we certainly would like to take that tip and use it. But I think if we talk to you, we, we can get more information and eventually we will get you to where you will see the need to testify. But Crime Stoppers program is, we can't do our job without it, put it that way. Yeah, that's great. And I can see that would be so frustrating. Here's a good tip, but you can't talk to them. I definitely get that. Okay, so before we wrap this up, we love stories on this podcast. So with over 34 years in law enforcement and working so many cases, what was the case or what is a case? Because I'm sure there are many. uh, That was a just kind of your greatest struggle to solve, but you and your team solved it and you feel like it was a win. Well, I mentioned them already. Peggy Gaetan is the one that all we had was two masked up bandits and and a shell casing. And and that was it. And that one got solved. We used the media extensively on that. And man, we just put it out there. Every piece of information we had in that case went to the media within three days. And like I said, it took six years to solve it. And that's a good feeling. But, and you asked about Crime Stoppers, we got a Crime Stoppers tip in 2013 on that case and named the suspects. So there you have it. It may take a while to get there, but Crime Stoppers proved it's worth right at that moment. Then I mentioned the um, Kayla Ferrante case. We had four shell casings. That was it. And we solved that one. It's just a good feeling. A good feeling is the word, but you can give the family at least some resolution to to the death of their their daughter that that case was just horrific to see the parents they're great people they not that you know all victims families are great but uh it's just a sad case when when she's doing everything she should have been doing and she ends up dead and there's so many like that it's just hard to pinpoint one that you can pat your back you know Patch, your, patch us on the head and say we did good. And we continue to do good. The police department nationwide does good. You know, everybody's working very diligently to, to get the job done. So anytime we get a solve, it, it, it's a good feeling. Absolutely. Well, Sergeant Walker, thank you so much for joining me today and being on this podcast. What is the best way for our listeners to connect with you? Come on over for uh, dinner if you like. My wife likes to cook, but I'm not going to give you my address. You have to work a little bit to get there. Right. But I am—I uh, got sgtmetours.com is, is a website you can reach out to me. I've got a Facebook page, ME Tours. I'm on Instagram, and uh, the podcast is Solve Them When You Get Them on Spotify and iTunes. Well, wonderful. Well, thank you again so much for your time. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I appreciate it. Thank you. The Investigation Game Podcast is a production of Workman Forensics. For more information about the topics we discuss on each episode, please visit workmanforensics.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please make sure to subscribe and leave us a review. You can also connect with us on any of the social media platforms by searching Workman Forensics. If you have any questions, comments, or topic ideas for the podcast, please email us at podcast at workmanforensics.com.